Okay, Psalm 47, Psalm 47. You know, really, and I'm glad that we could sing that and clap. It really does come right out of Psalm 47. If we could do this appropriately, we would be shouting, we could be leaping, we would be jumping, we would be filled with excitement, not only in our heart, but even physically, because this psalm deserves every fiber of our being to be filled with loud shouting to God, because He's the King. If I were to ask you, To think for a moment, what would be the grand overarching theme of the whole Bible? I think, and that's, the Bible's pretty big. What what would be the grand overarching theme of the whole Bible? I want to make a proposal to you, and certainly there could be others that might be given, but I would propose that the grand theme of the entire Bible from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22 is that Yahweh is the king. I think that as we read God's word from creation to the new creation and everything in the middle, it leads to this God-glorifying and God-magnifying thesis that he's the king. He reigns, he rules, and all that he does is for his glory. The kingship of God no doubt includes his activity in creation and his activity in his covenants. And what he does in electing the nation of Israel and then individuals to be his own, in his bringing of the Messiah into the world, in his redemption, and then certainly the consummation of all things at the end of human history. Maybe we could simplify a lot of that and say this, the kingship of God gloriously shines in four ways as we go through the Bible, creation, fall, redemption, consummation. The kingship of God and the power of God and the reign of God is so clearly on display when God created all things. It is on display even in the fall when man rebels against God. Man falls into sin, rebels against the king, but he remains in control and promises a deliverer. And then God shows his kingship in redemption when he provides himself as the redeemer from sin and from judgment. And then, of course, God does show his kingship in the consummation, in the new creation of all things, when the king returns and he will judge all evil and he will recreate a new heavens and a new earth in which all righteousness will dwell. When you and I get a hold of, and when we are gripped by the truth of the kingship of God, I think, I think it engages the mind. It, it astonishes the mind in such a way that we are awed by who God is. But not only is it intellectual, I think it ought to ignite our heart. And what I want to do tonight is not only inform your mind, but I want to ignite your heart with a love for the king and a trust in the king. And I think when we understand the kingship of God, it ought to capture our will also. I ought to obey. I ought to obey this king. One of my favorite verses, Psalm 96.10, say among the nations, the Lord reigns. What, What is biblical missions all about? What is biblical evangelism all about? What is Christian living all about? 
our king reigns. We have a great king who is the Lord of heaven and earth, and he's got a plan for human history, and he's provided a savior for those who can do nothing to save themselves. Behold the kingship of our God. Psalm 47 is a hymn of triumph. Psalm 47 is a celebration of the kingship of our God who rules over the whole earth. What is the theme of the whole Bible? Maybe one, one proposal. Yahweh is the king of the whole world. He is the king of the whole world. Now, when we come to Psalm 47... If I was going to give kind of an exegetical study of the psalm, dividing it from the Hebrew, I would probably divide it by the Selah in verse 4. Verses 1 to 4 would be part 1, and then verses 5 to 9 would be part 2. But what I hope to do this evening is to show you how the kingship of God just permeates the whole thing. It just saturates the entire hymn. But to begin, I want you to gaze with me on verse 8. Look at verse 8. And it's a simple verse, but this verse is life-changing. This verse is life-changing. Look at Psalm 47, verse 8. God reigns over the nations, and he sits on his holy throne. This is the central declaration of the whole psalm. Notice in your outline, number one, this teaches that God's kingship is established. He reigns. It is an established kingship. It's not that he will reign one day. It's not that he has reigned long ago. The kingship of God is an established, immovable kingship. Number two, his kingship is exclusive. God doesn't share his throne with Joe Biden. He doesn't share it with me or you or any other king or emperor or prime minister or monarch. He shares his kingship with no one. Number three, the kingship of God is exhaustive. Notice in verse eight, he reigns over the nations. In the Hebrew, the goyim, the Gentiles, all the nations, all the people groups, God reigns over them all. Number four, the kingship of God is emphatic. Because of the parallel phrases in the verse, he reigns over the nations, and then he says it again a different way in verse 8. He sits on the holy throne in two repeated phrases. We learn that our God reigns. The kingship of God, number five, is ever upright because he has a holy, he has a holy throne. His kingship is good. His kingship is holy. His kingship is always righteous. And then we learn about the kingship of God. It is eternal. Because when we read that God reigns over the nations and he sits, these are verbal forms in the Hebrew that shows from beginning to end the entire span of the kingship of God. There's no beginning and there's no end. God reigns. Did you know, even boys and girls, maybe this is new perhaps to some of you as well. There are 195 countries in the world. Did you know that in total, there are about 17,291 people groups in the world? 
About 7,200 of them are unreached people groups with no community of believing Christians at all. Currently, there are 8 billion people in the world. About 3.5 billion are in the unreached people groups. Currently, there are 7,139 known languages. Most common are English, Chinese, Hindi, Spanish, French, and then Arabic. And yet our psalm teaches us that out of the 8 billion people that span the globe, out of the 195 countries on the globe, the 17,291 people groups in the globe, God reigns over all of them. There's not a person, there's not a decision, there's not a raindrop, there's not a leaf, there's not a dust particle that's floating outside of God's kingship. Our psalm teaches that God is the absolute, the perfect, and the global king. The king over all. What I want to do this evening is show you what the kingship of God should produce in my life and your life. I acknowledge this is not an exegetical outline. It's more of a devotional outline. I'm pulling thoughts out of the psalm as a devotional way for us to understand and think about the kingship of God. So let's walk through it together. What should the kingship of God produce in my life, in your life? In your outline, number one, it should produce joyfulness. Joyfulness. I mean, verse one is a little weird for people like me and you, perhaps, because it's so loud. It's loud. I mean, it really kind of shatters a little bit of my worship style a little bit because because it it involves praise like clapping, shouting, loud singing because our God is great. Our God is the king and there is none like him. Look at verse one. Oh, clap your hands all you peoples. It's not some of the peoples. It's not the men and the women here, or the men and women there, or the boys and girls here. It's, it's all peoples. Clap your hands. Shout to God with a voice of joy. I mean, the Hebrew words are just loud. They're shouting. They're clapping. They're, 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 they're banging their hands together. They're lifting their voices loudly with a shout of praise, with joyful singing, with shouts to the king. You know, I, I read this and I, I can't help but wonder. You, you remember with me in the book of Matthew chapter 2, when the magi, the wise men came from the east? Remember how far they traveled, right? And no doubt they came to the, to the door of King Herod's palace and they're, they're knocking and they say, we are looking for the king of the Jews. Well, Herod thinks he's the, the king of the Jews. And yet these wise men, these magi must have come with enthusiastic joy. They must have come with enthusiastic determination. And why? They have come to worship him. We've traveled hundreds of miles to worship him. This isn't some lightweight praise. This isn't some optional praise. These are determined 
worshipers who want to find the king. And they are going to worship him. I think of that. Are we like these wise men? Let let me worship the king. Let me see King Jesus. Let me worship him. I think, of a, I think of the kingship of God and the sovereignty of God and the glory of God. I think of it impacting my heart and your heart so that we would cheerfully, enthusiastically rejoice in God. I mean, think of it like this. Has the cross of the Lord Jesus so gripped your heart you're passionate with enthusiastic praise to him. Has the justification that God has counted you righteous because of what Jesus has done in your place by simple faith in Christ, has that gripped your heart so that you, you just want to worship him? Has the the reality that God has chosen to forgive you, I will remember your sins no more. Has that gripped your heart so that you you could shout to God with the voice of triumph and a voice of joy because of what God has done. When we come to know God rightly, the kingship and the grandeur and the power and the sovereignty of God, one result, it ought to produce joy in us. Number two, in your outline, it should produce obedience as well. Obedience. And I love this. Look at the psalm. Here's the reason, verse two, for the Lord most high is to be feared. He's a great king over all the earth. Yeah, this is interesting. He is the God most high. And then our English says he is to be feared. It's the idea of awesome, but literally the word awesome, like you are to have awe because of this God, like a, like a mouth jaw dropping awe of how powerful and mighty and sovereign and kingly our God really is. Earthquakes. He's powerful over them. Tornadoes and tsunamis and hurricanes. He's Lord over all of them. Every thundercloud with the lightning bolt and all that happens, God is sovereign over it all. He is to be feared. He is awesome. Verse 3, he subdues peoples under us and he subdues nations under our feet. There's really one picture that this would bring about in the Old Testament mind of a Jewish worshiper. It's the picture of full subjugation. Remember the book of Joshua, when a victor, a king, would put his feet on the neck of a conquered foe? That's the idea of verse 3. Full subjugation, full submission. What's the point? All peoples, all nations are under the feet of God. We are under his authority. We ought to obey him. We ought to obey him. You know, I, I, I mentioned that and I think of Mark, Mark chapters 4 and 5. One of the ways that Mark 
chapters 4 and 5 is such a profound section of the Bible is because it shows us that Jesus is Messiah because he's the king. But he's the king over all these things that Mark tells us about. For example, in Mark 4, he's the king over all disaster. Remember that? He calmed the storm. He was asleep on the boat, and the disciples are fearful. Don't you care that we're perishing? And they wake him up, and he calms it. But not only is he king over disaster, then he's king over disability. Mark chapter 5, there's a garrison demoniac. He's got all the demons. He's a crazy. He's a madman. He's a maniac. And yet Jesus utterly delivers the man. He is not only king over disaster and disability, he is king over demons because he does command the thousand of demons, the legion, to come out of the man. He has authority over the demonic realm and the devils. But then he has, he has authority over disease because in Mark 5, there's a woman who's bleeding for 12 years and, and she comes up to Jesus and he heals her. So he is king over disaster, disability, demons, disease, and then death. Because remember, Jairus had a daughter and then she died. Jesus went to the house. There was already a funeral procession going on and he raises her from the dead. And then later on in Mark chapter 6, you've got all of the enemies who are trying to belittle Jesus and mock him and, and scoff at him. He shows his kingship over his enemies and his detractors as well. He is the king. What's the point of all of that? He's worthy of your trust and your obedience. That all things are under his feet. All nations are subjugated under the kingship of Jesus. No one and nothing has authority over Jesus. Let's obey him. We ought to obey him. We are under him. Third, in your outline, what ought the kingship of God to produce in us? Well, joyfulness, number one. Obedience, number two. Number three, in your outline, it ought to produce assurance. I, I love, and we read the doctrine of election earlier from the historical creeds. Look at verse four of our psalm. God chooses. The Hebrew word elect, he picks for himself. God chooses our inheritance for us. He chooses the glory of Jacob, and it is Jacob whom he loves. What does verse 4 teach? That our God is a God who sovereignly elects. Out of his own free will and out of God's own uninfluenced choice, he has perfect purposes and decrees, and he chooses an inheritance for us. What's that? In the context, it's the land of Israel. It's Canaan. It's the promised land. There is an inheritance for God's people. That's what it is. That's the glory of Jacob, the Abrahamic covenant, the land that God promised. And they had a, a little bit of that enjoyment when they entered the promised land. One day that will be fully fulfilled, fully carried out in the thousand-year millennial kingdom. But it's not only a physical plot of land. There is an inheritance that you and I can look forward to even right now 
First Peter chapter 1 tells us that we've been born again to a living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, we obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and it will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Jewish people of old, the nation of Israel said, we, we have an inheritance. What's that? It's the land of Israel. Praise God. That covenant is still intact. It will be fulfilled in the future. But you and I as Christians, you and I as the people of God, we can say, yes, but there is a heavenly inheritance as well. We have the hope of heaven that awaits us. God is faithful. The end of verse 4. Sure. God chooses the inheritance, and the glory of Jacob is that inheritance. But do you see the end of verse 4? God loves Jacob. He loves Jacob. What's that? Malachi 1. Jacob I loved. Esau I hated. What's this? That God would elect in Love? Why would God choose for his people? Deuteronomy 7, verse 7, listen to this. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor did he elect, same word, or choose you, because you were more in number than any of the other peoples of the earth, for you are the fewest of the peoples. But because the Lord loved you, and he kept the oath that he swore to your forefathers. The Lord brought you out by a mighty hand. Know therefore that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps his covenant. Deuteronomy chapter 10 verse 15, Moses says, on your fathers did the Lord set his affection to love them, and he elected their descendants after them. What's the point? God's election always is married with his love. Sometimes people think, oh, you're, you're a Calvinist. You're so cold and joyless, and you have no passion. Actually, Biblical theology, when rightly understood, brings glory to God, for from him and through him and to him are all things. And we recognize that it all stems from the love of God. That's what gives joy and humility. It's like Ephesians chapter 1 when we read in verse 4, just as God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us. So God is an electing God, but his election is always coming to his people in covenant love. That's a reason to rejoice. But not only is it a reason to rejoice, in your outline, you see the heading here, it gives you assurance. I know that God has chosen me. If you're a believer here tonight, God has chosen you. If God has elected you, Just like in the Abrahamic covenant, he elected his people and he's got covenants with them. But individually, if you are brought into these wonderful blessings through faith in Jesus, you can have assurance. 
You can have unshakable comfort. This is what gives settling to your soul. We're living in crazy times where there is nothing to settle your soul except for the love of God in electing his people. He is faithful. He is so faithful. And then, and then right after that, did you notice at the end of verse four, there's that little word, Selah. It's that word in Hebrew, pause, think, ponder, take it all in, meditate. Wow. Our God is the king. We ought to rejoice. We ought to clap our hands. We ought to shout to our God. We ought to obey him because all the nations are subjugated under his feet. Verses four tells us that he chooses, he elects nations for himself, Israel, and the inheritance that they have. And yet all of us individually who were brought into the covenant blessings, we can rejoice and have assurance. There's more. In your outline number four, what does the kingship of God produce? Singing. Now, notice what the hymn writer does in verse five. He's going to paint a picture. And then in verse six, he's going to talk about the praises. And then in verse seven, he's going to give you the purpose. Okay, verse five, God has ascended with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Okay, here's the image. In the Hebrew mind, in the Old Testament mind, this is a picture of a warrior king. It's a picture of a warrior king. Okay, everybody picture this. Boys and girls with your imagination, think about this. You've got a king. You've got a mighty warrior, and he comes down from his throne. He comes down from his throne to accomplish a work or a task or a victory. And then when all of that is done, he goes back up to his throne. That's verse 5. The Lord has ascended. What does that mean? He just, he just won the victory. And now he's ascended back up to his throne. Why? Because of all the great things that he's already done. Our God is the king. And he goes up with trumpets. The sound of a trumpet. Why that? Because on Mount Sinai, when God showed himself to be present, there was loud trumpet sounds. This is a picture that God in his might and power is here. And then verse six, because of that, sing praises to our God, sing praises, sing praises to our King, sing praises. I wonder what the main point is there. Sing to God. Why verse seven? Because he's the King of all the earth. Sing praises with a skillful psalm. With the mind, play skillfully. Christian, can I just quickly remind you, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus, 2 Corinthians chapter 2 tells us in verse 14, thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. Did you hear that? You are always led 
in triumph in Christ. Always, always. You are always led in triumph in Christ. We have every reason to sing because we are being led by our great captain. He's won the victory. He's accomplished the victory. He's the Lord and King and sovereign over all. Spurgeon. Spurgeon said, praise is the rehearsal of our eternal song. By grace at conversion, we learn to sing. And in glory, we will continue to sing. So we want to sing to our God now while we have life. Our God is the King. And that's where verse 8, that great thesis comes in. God reigns over the nations. He sits on his holy throne. And then verse 9, what a perspective in your outline. This is the final point, number 5. What does the kingship of God give? perspective. So our world is going up in smoke, it seems. Maybe somebody might think the trials of life, their world is going up in smoke. Maybe relationships are difficult. Maybe finances are tight. Maybe the future is uncertain. Maybe there's decisions that you've got to make and you don't know what to do. Verse 9 helps give you perspective so that we don't get sort of tunnel-minded on the issue at hand, but we have a proper perspective in our big God. Look at verse 9. The princes of the people have all assembled themselves as the people of the God of Abraham. Why? For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. If our God really is the king, and if he really does reign globally and effortlessly, If he reigns wisely, if he reigns exhaustively, if he reigns happily, if he reigns victoriously, verse 9 tells us all the leaders of all the peoples have all assembled themselves together as the people of the God of Abraham. That hasn't happened yet. But it will. It will. In the future kingdom. The parallel to that is the next phrase, the shields of the earth. What's that? Well, that refers to the leaders. Are you saying that the leaders of the earth belong to God and they have assembled themselves as the people of the God of Abraham? Oh, yes. There is coming a day when the Abrahamic covenant and the new covenant and all the blessings will be fully fulfilled through Israel to all the nations on the earth and the leaders. Believe it or not, will come to worship the king in Zion. Verse 9 is a perspective because it's forward-looking prophecy. It hasn't happened yet. Our hope is in our great king. Our hope is in the great kingship of our God. Our hope is in the assembling of all of the peoples who will worship our God. He deserves it, and he shall be praised. They can assemble themselves with Israel as Abraham's spiritual sons through faith in Christ. It's an amazing psalm. 
It ends in verse 9, God is highly exalted. Just so that we don't forget, he's lifted up high, higher than anything, higher than anyone. He is the great king. I want to conclude with a word briefly to the unbeliever and then a word to the believer. For those who are here tonight and you're not in Christ, the kingship of Christ doesn't grab your heart. You don't bow humbly and joyfully to the kingship of the Lord Jesus. You you don't live for his glory. You don't trust in Jesus alone. To an unbeliever who is still dead in sin, holding on to their own goodness, you ought to hear something like this and utterly tremble. Utterly tremble. Psalm 2 tells you to have discernment and take warning and to worship the Lord with reverence and to kiss the Son so that he not become angry and you perish in the way. Because the wrath of the king may soon be kindled, but how blessed are all who take refuge in him. So he is angry with those who rebel, but you can have refuge in him if you come to him by faith. But you don't want, you don't want to meet this one who is highly exalted on that final day of judgment as a proud enemy. You don't want to meet him. You don't want to meet that king. Today is the day to bend the knee, to bow the knee humbly and in faith and with full confidence before this good king. The unbelievers who's here, hear that warning of the word, kiss the son by faith. Find refuge in him and in him alone. But for those of us who are believers, Joseph Aileen. Joseph Aileen has a word for us. Look at the back of your outline, or maybe it's the bottom of that page. In one of his writings, he impersonates God speaking to you as a believer. And he's going to talk about the attributes of God right here, the kingship of God, for your benefit. Christian, hear this. Can you imagine God saying to you, I will be a sovereign to you. The Lord is your judge. The Lord is your lawgiver. The Lord is your king. Do not fear unrighteousness of men. It's as if God says, my hands will hold you fast. And you shall surely stand in the judgment and be found at the right hand among my sheep. And you will hear the king say, come, you blessed, inherit the kingdom of my father. My omnipotence will be your guard. I am God Almighty, your Almighty protector, your Almighty benefactor. What if your enemies are many? More are they than are with you, than they who are against you. For I am with you. Well, what if they are mighty? They are not almighty. Your Father is greater than all. Who can pluck you out of my hands? I am your rock. And I am your fortress, and I am your deliverer, and I am your strength, the horn of your salvation, and your high tower. 
you shall never sink. If my omnipotence supports you, the gates of hell shall not prevail against you. Your enemies shall find hard work at it, though your enemies set their nests against the stars, and even I will bring them down, says the Lord, for I am your sovereign. Have you ever thought of God and his almighty kingly power as your protector in this way? What, what, a, what a great king. What a good king to take refuge in. So as we go from here tonight and as, as we pray, let's reflect on God as the king. Triumph, rejoice, worship, and obey him. Amen.